Uh, bow your heads with me and let's pray. Um, let's go before the Lord. Uh, Father, we come to you right now and we're thankful for the wisdom that we find in your word. Like, Trip led us so uh, well. I pray that we would be reminded that we don't come here to hear the uh, musings of some man, Father. Uh, we come here to hear from you. And the reason why we know that we can hear from you is because we have your word. And so we pray that as we speak from your word, uh, that we would do like the old preachers uh, said, Father, that our goal is merely to draw out of your word what you yourself put in it, Father. I pray that that would uh, take place today and we would see your son shine beautifully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a three-letter word that is probably perhaps, well, that is perhaps one of the most powerful or influential words to ever exist. Do you know what that word is? I know you want to say God because we're in church, and yes, God is always the answer to every question that you get asked in church. But here's the word that I'm, that's in my mind right now. And the three-letter word is why. Why such a powerful word? Because it can change things. It's been used to motivate people, to manipulate folks, to stop folks right in their tracks. Why? This word has been used to motivate people. Think of if somebody came right now and approached you and said, hey, I want you to spend the next 12 hours with a shovel in your hand, filling up bags of sand tomorrow. You would likely say, I've got plans. There's things that I got to do. I don't want to spend my days that way. There's lots of things that would be on your, your mind. But if you step back and said, well, why? Why do you want me to do such a hard task? And they say, because a hurricane is getting ready to come to your hometown that is going to make the flooding from Katrina look like a kiddie pool. And it will destroy everything and everyone that you know and love unless you fill up these bags of sand to soak up the water. Your plans don't change. Your strength really doesn't change. But your motivation does. And any decent person would say, where's the shovel? We know how powerful this word is because we keep it out of the hands of people that are irresponsible. Do you know one of the worst things that you can do is to teach a three-year-old the word why? Because they find out that they can make any conversation go on indefinitely if they just keep on asking why. They'll have you questioning your whole existence, right? Why is a powerful word. It changes things. You give people information and it changes things, right? Knowledge is power and we know that it's power because of the pain that ignorance causes. Ignorance, not knowing, it will hurt us. It leads to disaster always and often. Whether it's a leak in your roof that you didn't know that you have that in the long run will cost you thousands of dollars. To a child that you're trying to watch and you don't know they have a peanut allergy. Or, you know, we've talked a whole lot about race in the course of these past few 
months, but what takes place is if you come up to a black person and try to touch their hair and you don't know that's offensive. Ignorance hurts us. It hurts us all. All of us find ourselves in a place where we want to undo the ignorance that's in our life. At the heart of most of the regrets that we have in life is ignorance, right? Like Matt and Tripp said when they were up here, Matt starts off and says, man, if I only knew back then what I knew now, if I only had information back then, then I wouldn't have lost that job. I wouldn't have lost that friend. I wouldn't have lost that spouse. I wouldn't feel the emptiness that I feel right now. Ignorance hurts. Knowledge helps. Knowledge is power. And we know how powerful it is because of how much pain ignorance itself brings. And it seems like that's simple enough. Right? What problems go on here in this world that wouldn't be improved if people just knew better? And so it takes place as we look at all of the woes that we face here in our world. It's easy to think knowledge is the answer. We have to spend our time just trying to make sure that people know. Is that what we put our hope in? Do we put our hope, do we rest our hope for change on knowledge and information? Or does it have a shelf life? Does it lead to... An end that's better than ignorance, but it really doesn't change anything. Well, part of what we're trying to do here as we work through the book of Ecclesiastes is we're just trying to take this survey of all of life, life under the sun, and just look at all the problems that we see and the solutions that seem to be attached to those problems. Do they really work? How valuable is knowledge? That's what we're going to spend our time on today. So if you would turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 12. Here's what takes place. The very first thing that we're going to see is we're going to see an expert's opinion on life. Whenever we find ourselves in in a roadblock or we find ourselves... uh, facing a problem, the very first thing that we do is we go to ask somebody that we think that can help us. I I don't know about y'all, but I have friends that think they know it all. So regardless of if it's like a car, a relationship, something wrong with my house, there's certain friends that if you run into a brick wall, they come in and they insert their advice and you say, thank you, but I think I'm going to go to somebody that actually went to school for this. I know that you have a car of your own and you drive it, but I think I'm going to take it to this guy that people pay and trust with their car. Well, the same thing takes place with life. When we have questions about life, the beauty of this book is that we get an expert's opinion or perspective on life. Somebody that has all of the things that you and I work for and try to yearn for. He has all of those things, and he comes to certain conclusions about life on his search for meaning. So start with me in verse 12 as we read. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12. He starts off and says this, and this will just give us a little bit of context. 
I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. A few things just to set a little bit of context. Ecclesiastes can be confusing if we're not sure what genre we're we're in. This is a wisdom book, but the weird thing about this book is it's written like with so many other sub-genres. Some of the parts are like Psalms, some of the parts are Proverbs, some of the parts are more uh, instructive, and some of the parts are more autobiographical. So it kind of feels at times like Matt Schmucker is up here and it's just a grumpy old man talking. This is a book that has caused so much confusion that there were certain folks in in, in past that were Christians, but they would say Ecclesiastes is a book that defiles the hands. So they would treat it like somebody would a dirty magazine and hold it by the tip and say, we don't even want to touch that because it's going to confuse folks. So here's what takes place right here. It starts off, and these first Verses are merely, uh, uh, chapters 1 and 2 are kind of this autobiography of sorts. It's a man reflecting on all of the things that he tried to do to search for meaning, to try to fix life. Autobiographies are great because they actually serve as the best teachers. Hear me when I say this. Experience is not the best teacher. Somebody else's experience is the best teacher because they go first and you get to see how bad things are and then you can slide back in. This is what he does, right? So you see this in verse 12 and 13. He says, I, the preacher, verse 13, I applied my heart. Verse 14, I have seen, it's this autobiography where he's bringing us on the journey with him. It's not just an autobiography, but he's clear to tell us, look, this is the arena at which he will look. The arena that he says is all that is done under the sun, which means this. If you're not a Christian in here and and you feel like, "Ah, I'm not really sure where I stand with God, I'm not really well versed in starting to talk about the scriptures and all of what God has done, but I know what's right in front of me. What he's trying to do in this book right here is to level the playing field. So we say, hey, for the sake of argument, at points, let's leave God out of all of this and let's just talk about what we look and see here. So the arena that he looks at when he'll use that term under the sun, what he means, it's let's examine and picture and think through and really pick apart everything that takes place here. Not just that, but even goes so far as to say he wants to do this comprehensive cavity search. Look here at verse 13. He says this, and I applied my heart to seek out and to search out 
by wisdom, I'm trying to find out the wise, all that is done under heaven. Verse 14, I have seen that, or I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all of it is vanity. So he's saying is, he's this king. He's this guy that has all these resources at his disposal. If anybody can find out the meaning to life, it's him. He has tools that you don't have. He has people to take care of all of the stuff to remove every distraction so that he can give himself fully to trying to find the value of wisdom. Knowledge doesn't really solve the problems that we hope that it would. And he comes to the conclusion. Here's the conclusion that he comes to. All of it is like chasing the wind. Everything in this life, what he says, apart from God, under the sun, if we look to it to satisfy us, everything, regardless of how good it is, is ultimately going to be underwhelming. Work as hard as you want to, but what's going to take place is apart from God, you're going to come away empty handed. So if that's the case, then what's the value of wisdom, knowledge, learning the things that we don't know? He comes to two conclusions. He gives us an answer, what he learned, and then we see the aftermath of what comes as a result of what he learned. So let's start first with the answer. Verse 15, here's what he says. I searched everything in the world trying to find meaning, trying to find why, and here's what I found. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Here's what he says. Everything stays broken, and something is always missing. The assessment that he has of life as he's looked at everything, he says, under the sun, everything stays broken. And something is always missing. Broken. Here's what he's learned. You can learn all that you want to about tornadoes. The best way to be safe in a tornado. The best way to deal with floods and hurricanes and natural disasters. But do you know what else you learn? There's nothing that you can do to stop any of them. They're nobody's fault, but anybody can fall victim to them. This world's broken. Not only is it broken, but he comes to the conclusion, this world is broken, but but something is always missing, right? So when he says what is lacking can't be counted, what he's saying is we always have this nagging sense that something's missing. And we say, if I just had that, then I would be complete. We try to account for what's wrong. And we get it, and we find out something's still missing. One of my favorite movies was Home Alone. How you remember? So... Um, they leave their what, six-year-old son at home, and he protects his house and all that. 
Well, as the mom is flying to Paris, she has this nagging sense. Something's missing. And so she goes through her purse, and they go and check off, hey, did you close the garage door? No, that must be it. And then she's like, no, 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 there's still this. And she goes through, and she realizes there's not a plane ticket for Kevin. And she says, Kevin, and she, and, and she goes home and tries to get home really, really quick. And she gets home and she finds her son and the house is good and things are great until two years later when he gets on the wrong flight to New York. But what takes place is, is she finds him. She gets what was missing and everything is better. And what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, if only life was like that. But life is not like that. Here's what life is like. It's you and I saying, if only my spouse would change. If only they would fix the way that they acted. Then life would really be what I hoped that it would be. And they do for some time, but something's still missing. If only I got the job that I wanted. Then things will be fine. Things will be good. But what we have to account for is that everything's broken. The job of your dreams is going to be filled with people and tasks of your nightmares. The spouse of your dreams at times is going to feel like a nightmare. For you to feel at times or to think just one more time, just one more indulgence, just one more thing, regardless of how much that you get, what's going to take place is something always feels like it's missing. So we say, how did things get to be this way? Well, as Christians, we believe in this thing called the fall. In Genesis 3, we believe that God made the earth perfect and complete and holy, and Adam and Eve had everything that they needed as well as this perfect unhindered relationship with God, and God said, feel free to eat of all of this stuff, but stay away from this one thing for your safety. And it's this tree of, ironically enough, knowledge of good and evil. And what Adam and Eve did, they succumbed to the temptation that somebody told them something's missing. So do you know what they do? They go and look to find purpose outside of God, right? Verse 13 right here. Now, it's this weird verse, and if we're not careful, we can get the wrong picture about God. It it says this, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And then he goes on and says this, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Is God cruel? Is he somebody that sits us down with a maze, with a thousand ways in, and all of them lead to a dead end just to keep us busy? Is God cruel? Did God just give us this life because he's cruel and he dislikes us? No, I don't think that's what he draws here. But I do think the point that he's trying to make is it is something that was given to us by God, not because God was cruel, but it was the appropriate consequence to sin. Sin 
Adam and Eve, what took place is they said, God, I want to try to find meaning outside of you. And the consequence was God said, go right ahead. But what you're going to find out is that everything is always going to be broken. And something is always going to feel like it's missing. If you're not a Christian in here, I just want to continue to kind of harp on this point and just let you know that if you've met Christians and you feel like Christians as a whole are escapists or they ignore the woes of what goes on in the world, I would say that's not really the worldview of Christians. I think as Christians, we tend to be more realistic about the things that are wrong with the world. We tend to not put our hope in what we would think are false hopes. We are these realists where we know regardless of how hard that you work and strive and do, everything under the sun will ultimately remain broken. And that doesn't make us fatalists, but it gives us the freedom to live life and embrace it with the fact that everything is always broken and something is always going to feel like it's missing. So do you know what that causes us to do? It causes us to curb our expectations as we think about all that we face here in life. Charles Simeon, a preacher, said it like this. If a man assesses the worth of earthly things rightly, he will not expect too much of them. And consequently, when they fail him, he will not be unduly disappointed. So as Christians, there's this great freedom in that we know life is never going to feel perfect. And so do you know what that does in friendships? It puts you at a point where you don't over-expect or rest your hope for satisfaction on people. It puts you at a place where you don't over-promise and words like, I'll never disappoint you or, or I won't hurt you like he did. Those things fly out of the window because you realize everything's always broken. Something's always going to feel like it's missing. So we curb our expectations and we don't expect fulfillment or ultimate satisfaction from the things that we find under the sun. It does the same thing when we think about churches that we find ourselves in. We don't expect any church or pastor to be absolutely perfect. We know that there are going to be things wrong. Granted, all wrongs aren't created equal. But if we know that truth and our expectations are curbed, it puts us in a place where we can be patient with the spot that we're in. And we don't spend our time bouncing around, but we choose. We make a decision to be where we feel like God has led us. And we land here knowing that everything is always broken, something is always missing, leads us to be able to view life under the sun rightly. And so we see, hey, there is an advantage to knowledge. Knowledge is better than folly. But here's what takes place, and here's the main point behind all of what he learns. Knowledge doesn't always make things better. Start with me in verse 16, and it says this. I said in my heart, and here the 
tenses of this verb and what it is that he proclaims. I have, past tense, acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart here to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. So he set out to know more than anybody else that ever existed. He set out to be the wisest man that was on the face of the earth at the time. And what he's saying is, I succeeded. If anybody wants to know not just the value of this world that we live in, but the value of wisdom, knowledge, the value of knowing, he's saying, you can look at me. And the conclusion that he comes to is this. I came out empty handed. It's a striving after the wind. But he takes this a step further. It's not just that he came out empty handed. Look at verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. His point is this. I got all the answers that I wanted. Knowledge drove me to find answers, but his thing was I found out that agony was in the passenger seat. And the message that he comes to, the conclusion that he comes to is this. The more that you learn, the more you lament. The more that you learn about life, the more that you see that it's not just that I come out empty handed. It's that I actually come out feeling at times worse than I did before I learned it. It's this the negative aspect to his work. It's kind of like this. There was this story that came out a few years ago where a guy was invited to swim in a pool with his friends. Hot day, trying to escape the heat. He steps into one side of the pool and it's shallow. Um, And so as he walks, he feels this slope go down. So he thinks, all right, this is the Shallow end, that's the deep end. And so he gets out of the pool, walks over to the other uh, 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 side, and in trying to escape the hot sun, he dives in head first, and it turns out that he was in what's called a sports pool, where both sides are shallow and the middle's deep. And so what takes place is in an attempt to escape the frustrations of a hot sun, he dives in, and briefly gets refreshed until his head hits the bottom and his spine severs and he comes out a quadriplegic. And so what he's saying in his case is, he's saying, this is what it feels like to spend all of your life thinking that knowledge is what lies in the way of my true joy only to find out that the more that I actually know about the world that I live in, the more that I find out that things are broken and that something is missing, and I find out that this very knowledge of the world that that I live in causes me agony that my ignorance seemed to save me from. How many of you have ever felt that? 
How many of you have felt, right, we talk about all this stuff that's going on in the course of the past few months with race and uh, injustice in the world that we live in. And in an attempt to fight that, the answer is, well, let's just learn. The world would be better if we all just learned the right things to do and what went wrong. And so what you do is you sit back and you start to read and you start to study. And what you start to find out is that the solutions aren't as easy as I thought that they were. And as the layers get peeled back, the more that you learn thinking that learning is going to cure you of despair, the more that you find out learning actually causes despair. I thought that it was just a problem with police brutality until I find out the stuff about mass incarceration and the school systems. And then you start to talk to folks here and you start to find out that people that have power are exploiting those that don't have any power. And you start to find out that this whole thing is tainted and it's messed up. And you feel like I used to be able to sleep better when I didn't know. And now I know when it's incredibly hard for me to sleep. That's why Matt says he's a grumpy old man, because he knows a lot. (laughs) This is the point that he's trying to make. So when we first moved into the West End, uh, I was at Popeye's one day. I was at a low point in my life. I was at Popeye's. (laughs) Despairing over all the stuff that I learned in the world, right? And a guy came up to me that was clearly on drugs. And he asked me for money. And I said, I'm not going to give you money. But do you know what I will give you? I'll buy you some food. That's safe. I'm going to buy you some food. You need food. I'm going to take care of this. I know not to give you money, um, but I know that I'm going to give you food so that at least you can eat. Well, I buy him food, and I sit there, and I give him the receipt, and I bought him like the like good meal, right? So not just the like cheap stuff, right? I spent a lot of money on this dude. Well, then I look and somebody sitting further away goes like that to the dude. The dude goes to him and the guy gives him $2 and he gives the, the guy the receipt and he walks out of the door. So I get mad and I go up to him and I say, hey man, I spent all this money because him, you know, I didn't want him to do that. And what this got, what Wayne said was, hey, man, I got to feed my kids. And here's what I know. If he didn't get the money from you, he's going to get it somewhere. And so he's like, I'm just going to use this. I'm trying to feed my kids. And I just sat back and I just thought, this is so depressing. That like... You know, I thought that this would help, but I find out that there are people here that find themselves with their back up against the wall so much that they feel like I have to choose in between exploiting somebody else and caring for my family. And they feel like that's the only choice that they have. So, of course, they're going to do that. And what do you do with all that learning? Does it help? It makes you frustrated and you start to feel like I was better off when I was just ignorant and I didn't know. The more that I learn, the more that I lament, the more that I'm driven to agony. 
But then as you sit back and actually start to think about ignorance, you you say, well, that's not good either. Because when I was ignorant, it's not that I was safer or better. I just didn't know. And that's still going to end up bad for me. So it feels disastrous. Let's talk about this thing from a spiritual standpoint. For those of us that have put our trust in the Lord and we know Jesus. I remember the first time reading the Sermon on the Mount. I remember thinking that sin was just the bad things that I did, that I lied, that I cheated, that I stole. And so it took place. It's like, all right, I think I can do this. I've just got to make sure that I don't do all of these things. I haven't killed anybody, and I don't think that I will, so that one's good, and the rest of these ones I'm really trying to work for. But then what takes place is Jesus comes, and he gives people more information, and he teaches. And what he says is, hey, adultery is not just about the act. It's about the mindset and lust. If you've lusted, it's as if you've already done that in your heart. Murder, it's not just about the act. It's about how you feel in your heart. If you hate somebody, then do you know what you've already done? You've already killed them in your heart. That knowledge takes care of the ignorance that we had about God's standard. But do you know what else it does? It can drive you to despair to where you feel like this thing is impossible. It is impossible. There's no way that I can do this. If that's the standard that God has, then why bother? And that in and of itself has driven folks to come to the conclusion to think that if that's what he wants and I can't do it, then I'm really just going to do the best that I can and I hope that he grades on the curve at the end. But the Bible is very, very clear that he doesn't grade on a curve. So with all that knowledge, with all that wisdom, it just seems like all across the board, it drives us to despair when we think about life, not just this one, but our next life. And this is the conclusion that he comes to. The more that you learn, the more that you lament. And that's the end of chapter one. Here's the beauty about this book that we read, though. The author is not in this place, nor does he really think this uh, uh, about the sum total of learning. We have to remember that when this book is written, chapters and verses were not included. He wrote this as a whole piece. This part is autobiographical. He's taking us on a journey to show us not just that life is hard, but Idols don't work. Anything under the sun that you put your ultimate hope in will be underwhelming. So this book is meant to talk about life under the sun, but the author of this book knows that if we have any hope for joy, we're going to have to look beyond the sun to find it. And so as we think about knowledge, driving us to answers, but leaving us with agony, we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with the agony that we face? What do we do with this sense of, I feel like I've wasted my time. What do we do with this negative view that we have of learning? 
Here's what we do. We redirect our minds from learning about the what and the why of life to learning who it is that created this life that we have. The only way that we're going to find joy is if we shift to focus first on the who before we get to the what and the why. If we just think and just live in the what and the whys that we find here in this world, it's going to drive us to despair. But if we look for the who, if we look for the joy that lies beyond the sun, then we find that there is an actual joy. There is a good end. There is a good place that we can direct our learning where the more that we learn, the more our joy will increase. Jeremiah 9, chapter 23 and 24 probably puts this better than almost any other place that I can think of in the Bible. And it says this, let not the wise man boast his wisdom. All right? Don't If you're wise, don't think your wisdom's going to save you. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. The Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We're grateful to God that he doesn't even put the burden of finding this truth on us, but he's the one that comes to us. He finds us with this truth. Matthew 12, Jesus has this amazing line at the end of the chapter when he talks to a group of people that are pursuing wisdom, and he says this. This is a story in 1 Kings 10 where Solomon, right, the guy that it at least seems like the book is alluding to. They're trying to give a nod to, all right, this is Solomon-esque in its wisdom. In 1 Kings 10, there's this time where you see everybody in the world is coming to Solomon to try to make sense out of life. And Jesus says, but here's what I want you to know. Somebody greater than Solomon is here. Solomon could give you answers and tell you everything's broken. Nothing or uh, it always seems like something's missing. He could tell you that the more that you learn about what goes on here in this earth, apart from God, the more that you're going to be driven to agony. But do you know what Solomon couldn't do? He couldn't make the crooked path straight. Solomon couldn't fix it. Jesus comes down and says, look, somebody greater than Solomon is here. Somebody can come in and actually fix things. And Jesus begins by coming for people like you and I. Our knowledge of ourselves, if we're really honest, as we start to go through life, I think that our view of ourselves in a healthy way, starts to diminish because we realize that we're not all that we thought that we once were. We find ourselves in places and doing things that we said that we would never do. 
And it's easy to discover something about ourselves and to say, I can't believe that that was in me. I can't believe that I lashed out like this. I can't believe that I was guilty of this. I can't believe that I would be so stupid. And that knowledge, that increased knowledge, could drive you to despair unless you redirect your efforts and learn about a God who, when he chose you, already knew all of that stuff about you. Here's why one of the great, res- the, one of the great uses of your mind is not to be content with the elementary stuff that we know about God or that we learned in church as we grew up. One of the best uses of your mind and your time is not just to make sense of the who or the what's and the why's of life, but to start with the who, because that changes things. A book, funny enough, that it must have been 13 years ago, Tripp sent me a text message and said, hey, I just read this book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He's in high school and I'm in college and he's like, man, I just, you know, I just read this book. You got to read it. And so I read this book and there is a line, there is a paragraph on page 42 in that book that changed my life. And I'm going to read it to you right now. Listen, as he talks about knowledge, it's going to be up here on the screen. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes, be it said, not enervates, in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. If you don't know that about God, but you know all the rest of what you do about life and you're driven to despair, what happens when you find yourself in the lowest of low of life and you know that you've displeased God, if you don't know that about the who, if you don't know that about him, I can tell you what you'll do. You'll run from him. You'll look for comfort elsewhere, in some place where it can't be found because of ignorance of a who. But if you give your time to knowing this God, then do you know what takes place when you find yourself in the worst places at rock bottom, below rock bottom? Do you know what takes place when somebody else comes to you and confesses that they're below rock bottom? If you know this God, you don't stay in lament, but you lead them to hope. Because we're reminded that this God's love 
was expressed not just with nice phrases and words, but with the cost of his very life. Jesus didn't go to the cross to die for our sins, and then once he learns things about you and I, say, I never would have done that if I would have known. No, he has perfect knowledge. He already knew before he went. That's why he went. That's why it cost him his life. And the beauty is nobody in here is disqualified or has sinned too much, or too heavy. So right now, where you are in your seat, repent of your sins. To turn and to say, Lord, forgive me for trying to find comfort, and forgive me for trying to fill myself with what's missing by things that I can see, that I can look at, that I can touch, and that I can taste. Remind me that you gave me everything that I needed in Jesus with prior knowledge of the worst about me. That's freedom. That's relief. That's something to give your time to, to study and to know this God. And that's something that you can spend the rest of your life helping other people to learn the same thing. Every other relationship that you find yourself in, in this world, increased knowledge will or could lead to decreased admiration. Think of the, peop- think of the person that you admire most in this world right now. Think of somebody that you place on the highest pedestal. I guarantee you that if you knew more about them, they wouldn't be as high up. I remember the first time that I learned the details of Martin Luther King's home life. I remember the first time that I learned that Jonathan Edwards, a great theologian, owned slaves. I remember the first time that I realized that my dad wasn't perfect. Increased knowledge of anybody is going to lead to decreased admiration and affection, except for Jesus Christ. We'll spend an eternity peeling back the layers of who he is, and our admiration and our affection will only and exponentially Increase, and that starts right now. All right. And here's what that does it doesn't cause us to ignore the what and the whys of this world, it just puts it into perspective. Now it takes place if we realize that our joy is ultimately going to be found in Jesus. We can stop looking for it in our spouses. We can stop demanding that they change in order to make us joyful and be reminded of a life of a man who the Bible calls a man of sorrows. But yet he was the one that led the way forward to joy for all of us. Sorrow is not, 
sorrow and hard times and a messed up life and a broken world, all of those things and joy are not mutually exclusive. And Jesus proved it. And so if we know that that's the case and we know that about him, now instead of trying to change our spouses, we can be free to serve them like Christ has called us to. Now in trying to manipulate the relationships that we have here in this world to bring us joy, we can serve them. Now instead of being driven to despair by the frustration of what goes on in our world, we can put our hands to the plow. And know that God is going to bless our work. And one day, as we set our eyes and our hope fully on the grace that's going to be revealed to us at the revelation of the Lord Jesus, we can be reminded that perfection and working towards perfection is not our goal here in this life. Our goal is just to be faithful. One day, things are going to be made clean. One day, somebody is Go, 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 going to come back and to set the crooked paths straight. And that person is not us. That person is Jesus. This knowledge frees us to give ourselves fully to learn somebody, to learn about something that's only going to increase our joy and give us the fuel that we need to lead faithful lives now. Let's pray. Father, um, we're grateful for the work that your son has done on the cross to provide us all that we need. Father, would you forgive us for feeling like there's something in this world that can satisfy us? Remind us that when we feel this sense of lack or that something is missing, that it's not the things that we can touch and see and look at with our hands, Father, um, but it's a knowledge of you, Father, the knowledge of you that was meant to satisfy us from the beginning, Lord. Uh, so would you remind us of this wisdom, which you set our hearts in affection, on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.